Hello and welcome to this July 20th installment of AZ Law here on member-supported SunSounds of Arizona and sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney Paul Wyke, and we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. We have several news articles and commentaries for this installment from a variety of sources, so let's get right to it. Our first article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. Court says, states attempt to pass $8.5 million in taxes to Tucson Unified School District property owners is illegal. Here's the article out of Phoenix. A judge has rejected a plan by Governor Doug Ducey to balance last year's state budget and pay for his teacher pay raises by hitting up Tucson residents for more taxes. Tax court judge Christopher Witten said the state acted illegally in trying to say that it would be taxpayers within the TUSD, Tucson Unified School District, who would be solely responsible for the cost of desegregation programs. Witten said that the legislation adopted at the behest of the governor cannot trump the Arizona Constitution. A spokesman for the governor would say only that he is reviewing the ruling, but unless overturned, it means the state owes TUSD about $8.5 million. But Senator Vince Leach, a Republican from Tucson who helped push the plan, said he was disappointed by the ruling. He said it means that taxpayers throughout the state have to underwrite the costs of desegregation programs not only in Tucson, but in several other school districts in the state. You're penalizing people who live in Lake Havasu City for a high tax rate in Pima County or Pinal County, he said. Pima County Administrator Chuck Huckleberry, however, had a different take on it. He said the ruling forces the state to live up to its constitutional obligations and not try to shift them to certain local taxpayers. At the heart of the issue is a 1980 voter-approved constitutional amendment that caps primary property taxes, generally the basic operating costs of running government and schools, at 1% of a home's full cash value. That is a figure that is supposed to represent the market value of the property. So on a $200,000 home, the maximum primary property tax can be no more than $2,000 for all levels of government. That cap, however, does not cover secondary property taxes, things that voters impose on themselves, like bonds and improvement districts. But the cost of desegregation programs has always been considered a primary tax, so it falls under that constitutional cap. All that is important because that 1980 constitutional provision says once a homeowner's primary taxes hit that 1% figure, the state is responsible for the excess. What Ducey proposed in crafting his budget and what the Republican-controlled legislature adopted last year was to move those desegregation expenses into the secondary tax category. That put the additional burden strictly on the local taxpayers, saving the state about $8.5 million that otherwise would need to be spent to keep the primary taxes for TUSD residential property owners below that 1% cap. Witten, the judge, in his new four-page ruling, said lawmakers cannot do that. The judge pointed to a section of the Arizona Constitution that spells out what is exempt from that 1% cap, things like those voter-approved obligations and budget overrides. That list, he says, comprises everything that is a secondary levy. What the 2018 budget law did or sought to do is to add desegregation expenses to that list. The statutory label of secondary taxes in then-new law cannot trump the constitutional limit found in the Arizona Constitution, Witten wrote. 
More to the point, since desegregation expenses are not approved by voters and not a secondary levy, the cost, according to Witten, is still subject to the constitutional 1% limit. And that means anything above that limit has to be borne by the state as a whole. The only reason the case got to court is that Pima County government is the agent for levying local taxes for all levels of government in Pima County, and Huckleberry said he was not about to pass on those desegregation costs above the 1% cap to the homeowners in TUSD. Our belief was that if we did that, we would be levying an illegal tax, and we chose not to do it, said Huckleberry. What that decision also meant, however, is that TUSD did not get the extra $8.5 million that it would have gotten had Pima County simply levied the tax that Witten has since found is illegal. TUSD is short the money, he said. What that means is this $8.5 million now has to be paid by the state to the school district, said Huckleberry. This is actually the second time that Witten has rejected efforts by Ducey and the state legislature to get out from its constitutional obligations to backfill local taxes when that local primary rate hits the 1% cap. In 2015, legislators voted to empower the Property Tax Oversight Commission to decide how the extra funds needed for desegregation expenses should be divided among various local taxing districts. That panel could have concluded the entire obligation belongs solely to county government or even could have forced cities and community college districts to pony up some cash. After that was struck down, Ducey and lawmakers came back last year with the effort to try to redefine desegregation expenses as secondary taxes and therefore not in the state's burden. While Ducey would not comment, Bleach said that he will look for another method to keep the cost of desegregation programs entirely on local taxpayers that should not be transferred to other people in the rest of the state, Leach said. And that's the end of the article. Court rules states attempt to pass $8.5 million in taxes onto the TUSD property owners is illegal. It was written by Howard Fisher from Capital Media Services. And that was a very good explanation of the uh, well, what can be a kind of contra- uh, uh, convoluted subject. So appreciate that article. Next, let's uh, read this original reporting from AZ Law uh, that I wrote earlier this week. AZ Law has been following the U.S. Supreme Court. This is an update on a previous case. AZ Law has been following the U.S. Supreme Court action filed earlier this year by Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich against the state of California. Arizona is accusing our neighbor to the West of unconstitutionally collecting some $10 million per year from Arizona LLCs, the LLCs that invest in other LLCs that are doing business in California, and that the state of Arizona loses some $500,000 per year in tax revenues because of it. Before leaving for summer vacation, the U.S. Supreme Court justices asked the Solicitor General to let them know in writing what the federal government thinks about Arizona's complaint against California. Because the Supreme Court did not give the Solicitor General a deadline to file the brief, and because the court is mostly gone for the next three months, it is unlikely that the court will give Arizona the green light to move forward with the litigation until autumn. Several groups have already filed friend-of-the-court briefs supporting Arizona's argument that California is overreaching and taking monies that would otherwise stay in Arizona and other, and other states as well. 
And that's an update on the case Arizona versus the state of California regarding $10 million in ye- a year that the state of California is grabbing from Arizona LLCs and $500,000 per year that California is costing Arizona taxpayers by reducing the amount of taxes that Arizona LLCs are paying. Next, we turn to an article from Ballot Access News, and that is a national publication, their July 1st publication. It is the, the article headline is U.S. District Court Upholds Arizona Independent Petition, and it's written by Richard Winger. On June 11th, a U.S. District Court magistrate and Obama appoint, John Boyle, an Obama appointee, upheld the Arizona Independent Presidential Petition, which for 2020 requires approximately 30,000 signatures for an independent candidate to get on the ballot. The exact requirement is not even known and won't be known until next year, and it will be 3% of the number of registered voters as of mid-2020. The district court magistrate noted that only one independent presidential candidate has managed to get on the Arizona ballot since Ross Perot did so in 1992. That one more recent success was by Ralph Nader in 2008. However, Magistrate Boyle said that is not important because there were virtually no independent presidential candidates who wanted to get on the ballot in Arizona in recent years. That is false. Presidential candidates of significance who failed to get on the Arizona ballot are Evan McMillan in 2016, former Congressman Virgil Goode in 2012, Chuck Baldwin in 2008, Ralph Nader in 2004, Michael Perutka in 2004, and David Cobb in 2004. And they all placed in the top six of candidates nationally in the presidential elections of those years. Magistrate Boyle said that in many other states in recent years, no independent presidential candidate qualified. For example, he wrote that in 2012, Arizona was one of 41 jurisdictions with no independent presidential candidates on the ballot. That is also false. In 2012, 25 jurisdictions had a presidential candidate who used the independent presidential procedure. Magistrate Boyle put this error in his opinion because the state had asserted it in its pleadings. But the state only counted presidential candidates who used the ballot label independent. In 26 states, presidential candidates who use the independent procedure are permitted to choose a partisan label other than independent. And the state and the opinion excluded all those candidates who did not use independent as their label. They even excluded candidates who appeared on the ballot with such labels as by petition or unaffiliated. A well-written opinion is expected to mention precedents that disagree with the judge's conclusion. But the Arizona opinion ignores all the precedents that support the plaintiff. The opinion also upheld the county distribution requirement for the new party petition in Arizona. There are 15 precedents striking down county distribution requirements for statewide petitions, and all but one invalidated the distribution requirement, even when they were very easy. But the magistrate only mentioned one of those 15 precedential cases instead of reviewing all or most of the precedents on that point. And that was a commentary, an article, an analysis, I guess I would say, by Richard Winger in Ballot Access News, headlined, U.S. District Court Upholds Arizona Independent Petition. 
And we checked just before going on the air, that case has not yet been appealed, if it's going to be appealed, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a 2016 case. It was filed by uh, someone named De La Fuente. So let's move on from that. This is an article. The next one is an article from the Phoenix New Times. It was published on July 3rd, and the headline is 109 or 43. Attorney says number of accused abusers in the Phoenix diocese matters. Here's the article. It's written by Michael Clancy. And he is formerly, he was formerly the religion writer for the Arizona Republic, but here he is writing for the Phoenix New Times. Did the Diocese of Phoenix provide a home to 109 clergymen accused of sexual abuse? A new report compiled by one of the nation's leading law firms on clergy sexual abuse identified that many, saying they lived, worked, retired, or visited in the territory of the diocese. Many of the accused have been convicted of their crimes. Others were the subjects of civil lawsuits, and quite a few died before the accusations were revealed. Some were credibly accused, as the church puts it, in other dioceses and came to the Phoenix Diocese later, sometimes no longer allowed to work as priests. According to the Phoenix Diocese, none are working here now. This latest compilation of perpetrators comes from Jeff Anderson and Associates, which has been involved in clergy abuse cases since the early 2000s. About 50 priests, other clergy, and church staffers were identified 16 years ago when Bishop Thomas O'Brien was still in office. Some of the identities were released by the diocese, others through the court system and direct contact between abuse victims and the media. On its website, the diocese now lists only 43, but that has not been updated to reflect religious communities such as Jesuits and the like that have ministries here in the Phoenix Diocese. It is confusing. The additional numbers in the Anderson report come from the inclusion of names released by religious orders that have ministries in the Phoenix area and by adding in priests who were ordained in other dioceses and then came to Phoenix to either vacation, work, or retire. The final group would be listed as accused abusers back in their home diocese. Several on the Anderson list work for other dioceses in the area that is now covered by the Phoenix Diocese, which was carved out of the Diocese of Gallup, New Mexico, and Tucson in 1969. The diocese now covers Maricopa, Yavapai, Mojave, and Coconino counties, as well as the Gila River Indian Reservation. Navajo and Apache counties remain part of the Gallup Diocese, as well as the entire Navajo Reservation, and the remainder of the state is part of the Diocese of Tucson. The distinctions between how dioceses count accused abusers and where they should be identified are artificial, Anderson said. They all had been in this area and worked there, he said. He said that from his own home office in Minneapolis. An accurate number of credibly accused clergy may never be determined owing to the diocese's history and those distinctions in counting. It can be difficult to draw the line as to where an accused priest should be counted. In their bankruptcy proceedings, both the Gallup and the Tucson diocese identified numerous clergy who worked in what later became the Phoenix diocese. Anderson says he is not convinced that even those numbers vetted by the U.S. Bankruptcy Court are accurate. As a result, the local diocese does not consider itself responsible for those individuals. Any action against those men would originate in their home diocese, and victims seeking counseling or other church-provided assistance would then have to go to those dioceses that employ those men. 
As Anderson pointed out, for victims, such distinctions may not be important. The jurisdiction that counts is the county where any legal proceedings might take place. The Phoenix Diocese also has been home to several religious communities, the best known being the Jesuits who operate Brophy Prep and St. Francis Xavier Parish and School, and the Franciscans who pastor St. Mary's Basilica and the Franciscan Renewal Center. Those groups do not report to the local bishop, but rather to superiors in other states. Several religious communities have in the past year released what they claim are comprehensive lists of abusers in their ranks. Anderson points out that any priest working in any diocese serves only with the permission of the bishop. Anderson said his firm has compiled similar reports in 25 other dioceses around the country and is working on others. In the past year or so, a Pennsylvania grand jury report identified more than 1,000 abusive priests. Accusations against former Washington, D.C. Cardinal Theodore McCarrick followed, and both sets of reports opened new avenues of inquiry nationwide, especially focused on bishops who had covered up crimes. Since then, numerous dioceses have released reports and civil and criminal authorities are investigating in many states. Back in 2003, when the abuse scandal initially unfolded, only a couple had released such lists, including the Crozier Fathers, who operate in Phoenix. The Phoenix Diocese trickled out a few names of accused abusers who never were criminally accused or sued at the time, and a Maricopa County grand jury at the time identified only a handful of accused abusers. Anderson, in a press release, said his firm believes the Diocese of Phoenix does not make available to the public the full history, knowledge, and context of the sexually abusive clerics within their diocese. The diocese includes on its website several lists of accused clergy, however. One list includes 16 names of priests and deacons who have been laicized or thrown out of the clergy and or removed from ministry due to sexual misconduct with a minor. It lists one other case, one other, whose case is in the works in the Vatican presently. A total of 18 priests are on the laicized slash removed from ministry list for religious order priests, such as the Franciscans and Jesuits. Finally, the diocese lists eight men from outside diocese who may no longer serve in the diocese due to an accusation. That's only 43 names, a number that falls short of even what local journalists had compiled back in 2002 and 2003. The diocese also links to lists provided by the Tucson and Gallup dioceses. Until full transparency and accountability exist, children remain in grave danger, Anderson said. There is no indication that the current Phoenix bishop, Thomas Olmsted, has strayed from the straight and narrow when it comes to following the latest church rules on dealing with abuse. The diocese, in its own press release, said, We pray that today serves as another step along their journey to healing. We stand united with the community, particularly with children and vulnerable adults, in praying and working for an end to the tragedy of sexual abuse. The diocese certainly could be facing more turmoil in the years to come, primarily in the legal system. A new law extends the civil statute of limitations for abuse victims and opens a two-year window for any victims whose accusations fall outside the new statute. There are no limitations on criminal cases beyond a county attorney's discretion. Many of the lawsuits filed against clergy in recent years were dismissed because of statute of limitation concerns.
Potential legal action aside, neither the Anderson list nor the diocese lists give the full story. Left unsaid are impacts most importantly upon victims, but also on the health of the church in terms of attendance, finances, and personnel. Nationwide, declines in Catholic membership numbers have been reported, but the Phoenix Diocese still claims to be home to more than one million Catholics, as it has since Olmsted became bishop in 2003. With a report like this, survivors can see that they are not alone, Anderson said. It can inspire them to tell someone, and it can bring them to further action. This serves public safety, he said. The diocese, besides those brief statements posted on its website and read earlier, had no comment. And that article was 109 or 43. Attorney says the number of accused abusers in Phoenix Diocese does matter. And it was written by Michael Clancy. He's... He wrote this for the Phoenix New Times, but he is also listed as a former religion writer for the Arizona Republic. Well, let's finish up uh, with this article about a case that has a political case, but it's also been in the court system and probably will be in the future. Bernhardt's meetings heighten concerns of political meddling on Arizona development. It's reported by Tony Davis in the Arizona Daily Star. A U.S. Interior Department attorney met with twice with then-Deputy Interior Secretary David Bernhardt the same day she allegedly told a Fish and Wildlife Service official to back off his tough stance on a huge development in Benson. The two meetings, shown on Bernhardt's calendar, have intensified concerns of Trump administration critics that Bernhardt personally ordered the attorney to exert political pressure to reverse an environmental decision. Moreover, the meetings came 13 days after the developer of the Benson Project, Mike Ingram, who is also a prominent political donor to President Trump, held a private meeting with Bernhardt to talk about the 28,000-home villages at Veneto. Bernhardt, a Trump appointee and associate interior solicitor Meg Romanek, held one meeting before and one right around the time that the Fish and Wildlife Supervisor, Steve Spangle, said that Romanek called him on August 31st of 2017. Spangle has said Romanek told him, quote, a high-level political appointee, close quote, in Interior, wanted him to reverse his requirement for a major environmental analysis of the villages at Veneto. Bernhardt and Romanek met from 8.30 to 9 a.m. and from 1.30 p.m. to 2 p.m. in Washington, D.C. that day, according to Bernhardt's calendar. The second Bernhardt-Romanek meeting was also attended by Richard Gokin, Interior's Deputy Solicitor for Parks and Wildlife, who oversees legal issues involving the Fish and Wildlife Service, the calendar shows. Spangle got his call from Romanek mid-morning that day, he told the Star. He has said it was the first time he ever received political pressure from higher-ups in his long career at Fish and Wildlife under five different presidential administrations. An interior spokeswoman has not returned emails this week from the Star seeking comment on the meetings. Bernhardt, a former lobbyist for energy and mining companies, including the company proposing the Rosemont Mine near Tucson, has since been named by President Trump as Interior Secretary. Spangle said that learning this week about the two romantic Bernhardt meetings adds to his previous suspicion that Bernhardt directed the attorney to call him. It's another piece of circumstantial evidence, Spangle said. 
Spangle has said he gave in to the pressure and eased the way for Veneto. I knew that this was the Trump administration's position, and since I worked for the administration, I had a job to do, he has previously told the star. A few months after the romantic call, he opted to take early retirement. The Interior Department has previously denied putting any pressure on him. Romanek has not returned several calls this week seeking comment. She declined to discuss the case with the Star at the time that Spangle first alleged political interference in this case to the Star in spring of this year. The timing of the two Bernhardt Romanek meetings is, quote, incredibly suspicious given what Mr. Spangle has said about the call that he got from Peg Romanek, said Aaron Weiss, a conservationist who is deputy director of the Denver-based Center for Western Priorities. Weiss told the Star this week about the two meetings on Bernhardt's calendar. Weiss said he also finds it suspicious that Bernhardt and Romanek met again on October 6th of 2017. It was the same day that Ingram, the CEO of Veneto developer Eldorado Holdings, gave a $10,000 donation to a fundraising arm of the Trump campaign. The timing of that meeting and the donation may have been coincidental, Weiss acknowledged, but there is no way to know what the two were meeting about either day, he noted, because Bernhardt's official daily calendar does not disclose the subject of his meetings with various people and groups. That donation was later refunded. Lanny Davis, an attorney for Eldorado Holdings, said to the Associated Press on Wednesday, Davis said Ingram got a refund so he could donate instead to a political action committee that allows contributors to give more money than campaigns do. Ingram had donated $50,900 to President Trump's political committees since 2015, according to CNN. CNN reported earlier this week in The Star confirmed that Bernhardt held what CNN termed a secret meeting with Ingram in Billings, Montana on August 18th of 2017. 13 days before Romanek's call to Spangle. That meeting, unlike four others the developer and assistant secretary have had, was not on Bernhardt's official calendar. CNN's story uh, reported on Bernhardt's first August 31st meeting with Romanek, but not on the second. Last week, U.S. Representative Raul Grijalva, a Democrat from Tucson, wrote to Bernhardt to question him about these issues. Grijalva noted that Ingram's $10,000 donation came only three weeks before Spangle wrote to the Army Corps of Engineers on October 26th of 2017 that he no longer thought Veneto needed a full-scale environmental analysis. That letter reversed Spangle's position a year earlier in an October 2016 letter to the Corps that groundwater pumping for Veneto was likely to reduce the San Pedro River's flow in stretches designated as federal critical habitat for the endangered southwestern willow flycatcher and proposed as critical habitat for two threatened species. Interior Press Secretary Molly Block says the department will respond to Grijalva's letter in through appropriate channels. Davis, a prominent Washington, D.C. attorney representing El Dorado, has said that Spangle's final letter on Veneto, saying the major environmental analysis was not warranted, was the right decision based on the case's science and facts. He noted the Fish and Wildlife Service's Arizona office reaffirmed the validity of that final decision. Davis has criticized as innuendo comments raising concerns about Bernhardt's and Ingram's meeting and Interior's reversal on the case. The August 18th meeting in Billings, Montana, occurred simply because the two happened to be in Montana at the same time, an El Dorado spokesperson said. 
And that's the end of the article by Tony Davis in the Arizona Daily Star from July 12th. Bernhardt's meetings heighten concerns of political meddling on a controversial Arizona development. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. I'm your Sun Sounds of Arizona volunteer reader and Paul, Arizona attorney Paul Wyke, thanking you for tuning in and urging you to keep listening to member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. Mm-hmm.